Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's get our Bibles out and open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read one verse near the top of the second epistle to Timothy. And we're going to use that verse as a springboard for all the things that we want to talk about for these next few minutes from the Word of God. And so let's get ready to work together in the Scriptures and let God do some talking to us for, for these next few minutes. As you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'll just join in the welcome that was extended earlier. What a, just a fine number we have on this rainy and soggy day. It is kind of dreary and icky outside, but it is dry and it's cozy inside. And because of that, we're able to kind of focus our minds even more clearly on the things that we're doing and on the one to whom we are trying to honor and to glorify. And that, of course, is our Creator our sustainer and our redeemer. What a privilege it is that we're able to assemble together and to worship Him on this first day of the week. Let's read together in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes this to his young brother in the faith. In 2 Timothy 1 and in verse 5, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, And now I am sure dwells in you as well. That is a tender and heartwarming passage, isn't it? Everybody loves that verse. In fact, I imagine that lots of preachers last Sunday morning on Mother's Day read that verse and probably preached from that very same text there. I love that passage. We all love that passage. It's a wonderful passage except except something is missing in that verse. So good to hear about Timothy's faith. So good to hear about his mama's faith. So good to hear about his grandmother's faith. But but where's Timothy's dad? Where is Timothy's father in that passage? Now, it is possible that Timothy's father had passed away. But most Bible scholars tend to believe that based on the information here in 2 Timothy as well as the information that's supplied in Acts chapter 16, that Timothy's father was not a Christian. Let's just think about that for a moment. Timothy, this great preacher of the gospel, this fellow laborer of the Apostle Paul, this recipient of two of the inspired epistles that we still read and study from this day, here's this great man of God, yet his father was not a Christian. His father was not saved. If that is the case, and it seems that maybe it was, then you have to know that Timothy and Eunice and Lois, that they were working hard, that they were working frantically on the very toughest evangelism case that there possibly is. And that is bringing a family member to the Lord. Last Sunday night, our brother Chase Byers came and gave a report of the evangelistic work that he got to be involved in overseas. And as Chase was talking to us about the mission field abroad, I couldn't help but think about more local kinds of things. I couldn't help but think about the mission field right next door. Our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends. And then I started thinking, thinking even more close in. I got thinking about the mission field in our very homes. And this morning I want to talk about that. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about bringing the gospel home. What kinds of things can we do to reach a family member with the gospel of Christ? 
What can we do to reach a brother or a sister, a mother or a father, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a sibling? What can we do to reach those people to help them to become Christians and to be saved? In many ways, I believe it is the most difficult of all of the mission fields. Sometimes the very people that we are the closest to, they are the very hardest ones to reach. But I do appreciate Tom leading us in that song a moment ago, Lord send me. Because I think that fourth verse well describes how we feel about our family members who are outside of Jesus Christ. We echo those words, Lord, I must not and I cannot bear to let them go. That's exactly how we feel about our loved ones, isn't it? We love them so very much. And the thought of spending an eternity without them, them not being with us in heaven, it absolutely breaks our hearts. We have to do something, don't we? Sometimes though that something that we try to do, sometimes our tactics and our approaches to our loved ones, to our relatives, it's not always done in the best kind of way. Sometimes we approach that in a way that just ends up creating all kinds of problems. It creates fussing and fighting and hurt feelings and strained relationships that just makes the matter even worse. What then can we do? What can we do that will carefully and very constructively help a family member to come to the Lord and render obedience to His will? This morning I hope you recognize that as I talk about reaching family members with the gospel, I hope you realize that that topic is very, very broad. There are just so many different kinds of family scenario relationships that are going to fit under this big broad heading today. We may be talking about a spouse who is not a Christian. What if your parents aren't Christians? What if you have a grown sibling that's not a Christian? What if your grown child isn't serving the Lord? A situation that is often complicated by the fact that at one time maybe they were serving the Lord. I want you to know this morning that there's just not any way at all that I can speak to each and every one of those specific circumstances. And I want you to know as well that I am not operating under the the delusion that I somehow have the wisdom to answer and give the perfect response in each and every one of those circumstances. Do you know what I do believe? I do believe that together we can look in the Scriptures And we can find principles that will help us to teach people the truth. Yes, even to teach family members the truth. And I want to share with you six of those principles right out of the Word of God this morning. And what I want to promise you, in fact, what I want to guarantee you, is that if you will pay attention and if you will follow along for these next few minutes, that by the end of the time I'm done talking, you will have at least something if not several somethings that you can put in your pocket, you can take with you as you walk out the door this afternoon, and you can then use that thing or those things to help a family member come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that? I'm ready for that. Let's jump right into that with this first thing that I think needs to just be right here said at the very beginning. When we're trying to be evangelistic within our family to the people that we are related to, we need to just start by recognizing that sometimes we're going to have some limitations. If you're still in Timothy, would you just flip over a couple of pages to the book of Titus? In the book of Titus chapter 2, I want to notice something here that's not specifically said, 
But there is something that's said here by implication. In Titus chapter 2, look with me in verse 6. Paul's giving some instructions to Titus about the work that he needs to be doing and some people that he needs to be teaching. In Titus 2 and verse 6, he says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Titus, one of the things you need to do as a preacher and as a young evangelist yourself, you need to teach younger men. Teach them about self-control. Teach them about what it means to be a man of God, all right? What about the younger women? Titus, you're going to be teaching the younger women how to be a woman of God? Actually, no. Look back up in verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, etc., etc. This passage, I believe, well demonstrates that no one person is perfectly qualified or equipped To just teach everybody. Paul seems to be inferring to Titus that he is not the right person to be teaching and training young women about womanhood. Paul says that's for the older women to do. They are better suited for that work. They are better qualified to do that work. They're better able to teach a young woman about things like being a keeper at home and being submissive to their husbands and all the things that he mentions there in verses 4 and 5. That older woman's going to be able to relate to the younger woman. That instruction will be better received coming from them than it would be coming from a man. And I want us to see here that this is not about us shirking our responsibilities in any kind of way. Rather, this is about us recognizing that due to age differences, maybe due to gender, maybe due to other factors, I may be limited in certain ways. It may be better off that someone else is going to reach the people that I want to be taught the gospel. Now, if we can understand that principle as Paul lays out here in Titus chapter 2, then surely we can begin to understand that as it pertains to our family members. Instead of me just being so absolutely sure that I am the one who's going to win my family member to the Lord, I'm the one that's going to teach them the gospel and save them to Jesus Christ, I need to recognize that it may very well be That I'm not going to be the best one to do that. I'm not going to be the one who is most effective at reaching them with the saving message of truth. Sometimes just the fact is, is that us doing the teaching, that can just be off-putting for a family member. The fact that maybe a sibling might have to admit that they're wrong and that big brother actually was right all along, that can cause folks to be a little bit resistant. Or maybe a parent... The idea of a parent being taught the truth by their child, well, that's just just so backwards. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The parent's supposed to teach, not you as a child be teaching me as mom or as dad. And that can cause folks to kind of push back. Sometimes that's especially hard for men. Here's a man who's maybe not a Christian, but his wife is a Christian. She wants to teach him the truth, but as a man, he's just so manly and so rugged, and he just can't accept that coming from a woman. What we want to do is we want to develop enough self-awareness about ourselves to recognize that in some cases, I'm just not going to be the best person to reach that individual. I'll have to have to find somebody else. It's going to have to be somebody else. Tiffany and I, for the last year, year and a half, two years, I guess, we have struggled mightily to get Hattie to eat meat. 
She's good with the breads and the veggies and the fruits and all of that stuff, the dairy and all that stuff, but she's just, she's just not having the meat stuff. Unless you count hot dog as a meat, and I don't think most of us do. But getting her to eat real meat, turkey, beef, chicken, she just is not having it. We're always offering it, and she's just not having it. Then a few weeks ago, Hattie goes and stays and spends the night with her Aunt Heather. She eats an entire serving of KFC chicken while she's at her Aunt Heather's. We asked Heather, what did you do different than us? What are we doing wrong here? And Heather says, I just offered her chicken and she said, yeah, and she ate it. You see, there was just something there. And I can't explain it, but there was something in Hattie's mind that hearing that from her aunt made her way more receptive to the idea than hearing the exact same thing from the mouth of mom or from the mouth of dad. And what I think that illustrates is that sometimes, sometimes you're actually going to be the last person that a family member is going to be willing to listen to. Sometimes that closeness that we have can actually be a detriment to us. And it's going to take somebody... Outside, Maybe somebody even entirely outside of the family. A third party, completely impartial. Somebody that doesn't seem to have an axe to grind there. Someone who they will listen to. We need to recognize those limitations when they exist. And we need to be humble enough that when we see that we're going to be limited here, that I'm just going to I'm going to step out of the way. I'm not going to continue to try to press myself in here. No, I'm going to step back. And I'm going to get somebody else in there that's able to do that more effectively. It may be, though, that the reason that we are having difficulty getting anywhere with this particular family member is not an issue of, you know, they're not listening to us and limitations with that. No, it may be that what's happened is we've just been way too fast and way too furious with the gospel gun. What is the very first thing that we often want to do whenever we're trying to convert somebody? Anybody. We want to pull our gospel gun out of our holster. And we want to load that thing up with just as much religious material as we can. Fill it up with like 10,000 bullets, Bible verses. Just fill it up as much as we can. And as soon as we get them in our crosshairs, we just start plugging them. Just Bible verse this, Bible verse that, spiritual truth this, spiritual truth that. And we're just firing away at this verse. Then what happens next? Well, lots of times what happens next is not anything good. People end up feeling like they've been shot at, literally. They feel like they are under attack in some way. And as a result, our overzealousness with the gospel gun ends up driving them away. Here's the passage that we need to remedy that. Look in Matthew 7. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, We often refer to this verse as the golden rule, and I think that's a good thing to call it. We often think about the application of the golden rule in lots of different contexts in our lives, but how about we think about it here in reference to evangelism. In Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 12, Jesus says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying there is He's saying, we need to think about others. We need to put ourselves in their shoes. We need to ask ourselves, 
Is this the way that I would want to be treated? If the shoe was on the other foot, is this how I would want someone to be talking to me? And just ask yourself this. What would be your reaction if one day you came home and your spouse announced to you, maybe even in a very forceful way, that they are going to go join a cult, they're going to shave their head, they're going to wear weird clothes, they're going to go live out on the commune with all of the other cult followers. What's your reaction to that? What's going through your mind? You've got lots of things going through your mind. What are you talking about? Well, what about our family? What about our kids? What about your job? But maybe in the middle of all of that, as your spouse is talking about how, how they're going to go and be a part of this weird religious cult, in the middle of all of that, they then say, and I want you to come too. I want you to be a part of this weird religious cult. Whoa! Hold on! No! That is way more than I am ready to deal with right now. You can't just go shoving that kind of thing on me. You can't expect me to just jump on board just because you're all excited about this religious cult. Somebody says, Josh, I I think I see what you're fixing to do here. Are you saying that Christianity is like a cult? No, I'm not. But you know what? Many non-believers, that's how they view Christianity. They look at it as a cult. They look at us and they think we are just a bunch of weirdos. They see the kind of drastic changes that the Christian life calls for. Maybe they've even observed in your own life personally drastic changes that have occurred. And they realize that being a Christian is a radically different lifestyle than the rest of this world. And as a result, they see that and it just seems it's overwhelming to them. That seems like a scary proposition. It's way more than they can process and way more than they can handle. And meanwhile, what are we over here doing? We're just over here, we're just firing that gospel gun at them. Hey, you need to be a Christian. You need to be baptized. Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16. We're just plugging these people without giving any thought whatsoever to their reservations, their concerns, their feelings, their hang-ups, or their questions. Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 12, get your gospel gun, put it back in the holster. You need to hold place for a minute here. You need to give people a little bit of breathing room. Do that golden rule thing. And maybe some of that resistance will start to break down. I want to suggest to you that that kind of approach is particularly effective whenever, thirdly, you are living out real Christianity. This probably is the most important thing I will say all morning. That's a sermon in and of itself. When people talk to me about trying to reach their their family members who are outside of Christ, usually they come and they're concerned, and it's usually they express that they want to do something. And I'm always glad about that. I appreciate folks that want to actually take some action and do something. Instead of just sitting around just expecting something to happen on its own. Folks that are proactive and putting some work into this. I want to do something. And while there are any number of suggestions that could be made of good things to do, I believe this is the most powerful thing that you can do. And that is consistently live out your faith. Would you find 1 Peter chapter 3 with me? In 1 Peter chapter 3, here the Bible speaks specifically to a family situation. Here is a Christian woman in 1 Peter chapter 3, and she is married to a non-believer. 
Her husband is not a Christian. Well, what is she to do? What can she do? Well, Peter tells her what she ought to do. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. How so? By the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. What's Peter talking about in those verses? What Peter's talking about is he's talking about living out genuine, sincere Christianity. The kind of real discipleship that begins in the heart. Did you notice all the emphasis there on the inner person? You work on the insides and then that then makes its way out. You read 1 Peter chapter 3 and what you will not find is the woman who thinks that it is her job to just reform her husband. Just kind of get in there and hands on him. Just shape him and mold him to exactly the way that he needs to be. There's nothing in 1 Peter chapter 3 about this woman attacking her husband with the Bible every time he walks through the front door. There's nothing in there about her bullying him into being baptized. That's not the picture being painted here. In fact, while I recognize that this passage speaks specifically about the husband and wife relationship, doesn't this exact same principle, doesn't it apply completely across the board? You just take your pick. doesn't matter what kind of family relationship you're talking about. If I have a relationship with someone who is not a Christian, what do I need to do? I need to do this very thing here. I need to live out real Christianity for them to see. Which means, I need to work on me. You thought about this? It's not about me working on them. I need to work on me first before I ever go working on them. You know, the truth is, many non-Christians, the reason that they don't ever become Christians... It's because they view Christianity as a sham, as a farce. They have seen so much hypocrisy out of people who walk around and profess to be Christians. That's put them off. It's turned them off. It's turned them away from ever wanting anything to ever do with that. Sometimes, let me say a word to parents. Parents, sometimes that is the reason. Children grow up. And even though they've been brought to Bible class Sunday after Wednesday, they're brought to church all of their life, come to every single gospel meeting. That is the reason that sometimes those kids never grow up to obey the gospel. Because mama and daddy were hypocrites. Those kids weren't dumb. They were able to see through that. Mom and daddy acting one way on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday looking just completely different from that. It's not going to work, is it? It's not ever going to work. Some kind of half-hearted, pretend version of Christianity. People can see right through that in an instant. I remember talking with a sister sometime back about her adult son that she really wished would be a Christian. I mean, it's just, it's what she wanted more than anything else in this world. And she told me, she said, I have done everything that I can do to get him to come to the Lord. Which really surprised me to hear her say that. Because that sister didn't even come to church half the time. And I wanted to say, sister, it'd be a good place for you to start just by opening up God's Word and looking in that mirror and working on yourself first. She had put all kinds of other priorities first in her life until finally what had happened 
is the people that were around her, and in particular her son, they saw through that. She's not a real Christian. She's not actually living out what she professes to be. What we're looking for here is real, full-time Christianity. The kind of example that is following in the footsteps of Jesus 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. See, before we can ever begin working on somebody else, I need to go to work on the man in the mirror. I need to be cultivating the kind of character and attributes that are described here in 1 Peter chapter 3. I need to be developing the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ, be molded into His image. I need to work on me. I need to work on my example. Let me just say right here, talking about living out real Christianity, can I suggest to you that it is okay to struggle? Do not be afraid to show vulnerability as a Christian. That being a Christian is tough. That it's hard sometimes. It does us no good at all to put on that other mask. You know the mask that I'm talking about? The mask that pretends like being a Christian is just easy street. Like it's just smooth sailing all the time. I've just got this thing completely down pat. That too is hypocrisy. And people can see that as well. In fact, when we are talking about our family members, we're actually talking about the people who know us the very best. They know if we are faking it. They know if we're just fauds and phonies, phonies and, and fraudulent people. We need to be honest about the struggles of the Christian life. We need to be honest enough to say, you know what? Being a Christian, it is hard sometimes. That it's not always easy to resist temptation. And you know what? I don't know everything in the Bible. And you know what? I do have to ask God for His forgiveness on a daily basis. We want to be real. We want to be authentic. I tell you this. I don't know anybody who doesn't like real Christians. I really, I I don't think there's anybody in this world who doesn't like a real, genuine Christian. Now that doesn't mean that everybody, you know, is falling all over real Christians and wanting to be a Christian themselves, but I don't know anybody who dislikes people who are real, authentic Christians. Because real, authentic Christians, they are humble, they are kind, They are caring. They are the best kinds of people. And when we are like that, number one, God is pleased. That's most important. But then number two, that helps to open up doors with other folks, particularly with our family members. Which would lead me then to this fourth principle this morning. And that is that real Christians, they are the ones who seek to major in the majors Instead of getting caught up in the minors. Look with me in Matthew 23, please. In Matthew chapter 23, in the middle of this very scathing denunciation that Jesus delivers to the Pharisees, He says the following in Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 23. In Matthew 23 and verse 23, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You know, whether we want to admit it or not, there are some issues that are absolutely central to Christianity while there are other issues that are more peripheral in nature. 
And as we have opportunity to talk with people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to talk with them about the Bible and about Christianity in general, we want, as often as we can, we want to emphasize and stress those major points. Those things that are at the heart and soul and center of what it is to be a child of God. We don't want to get caught up squibbling about a bunch of small stuff. You know, Paul talks about the idea of laying a foundation. Jesus talks here about the idea of weightier matters. There are matters that are weightier. Like, for example, submission to the authority and the lordship of Christ. Like... The Bible being the inspired Word of God. Or things like that Jesus is deity, that He is the Son of God. And that there is as well only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus, a humble and obedient faith to Jesus. Those, those are the kinds of basic, fundamental, foundational ideas that we need to just be hammering away at as often as we can. And we need to look for opportunities to stress those things, expound upon those things. When those things are in place, then the other things are going to follow. Yet all too often, what happens with us? All too often what happens is is we end up getting into a big argument with Aunt Margaret about instrumental music. Or we end up having a big old fuss with Uncle Fred about, about taking the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Are those important matters? Yes, they are. Absolutely those are important matters. But you know what? If Uncle Fred or Aunt Margaret, if they don't first accept the Bible as being the sole and singular source of authority in all matters of faith and practice, then it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you're arguing about. Nothing's going to come from that. In fact, what will happen is, is you'll end up in an argument. That's just what it'll be. It'll just be a big, fat argument. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul warns about this to his young brother Timothy. And I think that's because Paul knew that particularly with young evangelists or even just young Christians that are very headstrong, it's very easy to get sucked into those kinds of arguments. In 2 Timothy 2, look in verse 24. He says there in 2 Timothy 2 in verse 24, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The passage says so much about our attitudes. It reminds us of what the primary goal is of our evangelistic efforts. And I think that those verses are especially poignant whenever the opponent in question there is a family member. I don't want to get caught up in quarreling with my uncle about the religious observance of Christmas when we're not even on the same page about baptism being for the remission of sins. What good is that doing? What good is it going to be? We're just going around in circles about celebrating Christmas religiously when we can't even get this square. Being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Parents, if I'm a parent, I don't want to fuss with my my teenage kids about things like piercings and tattoos and hairstyles, when what really needs to be stressed is sin. The consequences of sin. That sin separates us from God. The realities of hell. If we're not on the same page with our kids about that, fussing about tattoos and piercings, what's the point? what good's that going to accomplish? That's not to say that those other things don't matter. I'm not saying just throw that stuff out, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Not saying that at all. There's a time, there's a place for all those things. 
Those are not the things that are actually the substance of New Testament Christianity. And that's why we want to always pick our battles very, very carefully. I'm not sure that I want to go to war with someone over something that really is not really going to war over. And one of the ways that we can make those interactions with those family members most productive is by, fifthly, asking questions. And asking lots of questions. Would you find Proverbs chapter 18 with me in the Old Testament? The book of Proverbs is filled with so much helpful wisdom that helps us in these matters. Proverbs 18, I believe, is just one of the most important evangelism verses in all of Scripture. In Proverbs 18 and in verse 13, in Proverbs 18 and verse 13, the wise man says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. How often do we just start up with, here's the passage you need. And here's another passage you need. And here's what you need to know. And you need to know this. And you need to know that. Let me tell you about this. Let me give you five more verses on this over here. Before we've ever even asked any questions. Before we've ever even heard what this other person thinks, what this other person believes, where this other person is spiritually. Before we've ever asked those questions like, what do you believe? Where are you at currently in your spiritual thought process? How do you understand the Bible and these particular passages? No, instead we just want to jump right in and start giving all the answers before we even hear. You remember Philip's encounter with that Ethiopian man in Acts chapter 8? How did all of that begin? How did that conversation begin? Philip sees this guy out in the middle of the desert sitting in his chair and he's reading the Bible. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53. Philip runs up to him and he says, Do you understand what you're reading? Do you know what you're reading? He's picking that guy's brain. He's asking a question. He wants to know, where are you at? What is your thinking about what you are reading? What do you think about that lamb that's mentioned there? That then opened up the door for all kinds of great things to happen. And that's what we want to see and want to do. Because when I am willing to ask a genuine question and then hush my mouth, and then really listen. And not just the kind of listening that we often do, where we're just listening to formulate an answer in response. No, I'm really listening to this person. I care about what they are saying. And what that does is that creates relationship. That helps to build trust. Instead of acting like we are the people who are the guardians of all truth, we are the ones who know all of the answers to everything, and everybody else out there is just so ignorant, all that does is that just leads to fussing and arguing, and you cannot argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. But when we ask those questions, when we listen, that honors that other person. It shows them that we have a genuine interest in what they are saying and in what they are thinking. It causes them to start to really open up, to talk about the Lord, to talk about where they are spiritually. I think we need more of that in evangelism. I can say that for me personally. I need more of that in my efforts because it shows wisdom. It actually works. Finally then this morning, if we will ever be successful in leading the people that we love the very most to the Lord, then I believe that's going to have to take a determination on our part to be in it for the long haul. You know, I've shared with you several principles and ideas this morning from Scripture. 
These principles are very easy for me to stand up here and to preach and to say, but I will admit to you that they are very hard to live out and to live out on a daily basis. All of us, I'm just sure of this, all of us have family members who are outside of Christ. And it hurts, doesn't it? And we worry about it. And we pray about that. And we pray even more about that. And it is so hard. It is so agonizing to think about that. Because we want something to happen in their life. And when do we want that to happen? We want it to happen right now. Immediately. Because we understand the stakes here. We understand the brevity of life. We understand the fleeting nature of time and mortality. We understand concepts. We may not understand how to explain it. But we understand that there is such a thing called eternity. And there's no turning back once we reach eternity. And so what we are thinking at all times is this needs to happen right now. But family evangelism, more often than not, it's not a right now thing. It's not a 50-yard dash. Instead, usually it's a marathon. It is a marathon of trying and then trying some more. And then doing some praying and trying a little more. Then trying something a little bit different. Then taking a couple steps back. Doing a little bit more praying. Saying something else. Asking another question. Trying something else. Praying a little bit more. It's this constant cycle. It is this seemingly never-ending process. Which is why you must be committed to sticking this thing out. You can't quit. Go back to that song that we just sang. Lord, I must not, cannot bear to let them go. We can't ever get frustrated and say, forget, I just give up on them. You should give them over to the devil. I just can't do anymore. Just forget it all. No, our love for our family members, it demands more than that. Look at Luke 18, one final passage this morning. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus talks here about the power of perseverance. And He does that through one of His just most tried and true methods. He does that through telling a parable. In Luke 18, beginning in verse 1, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Verse 6, and the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give them justice. Jesus tells that story specifically to illustrate the importance of persistence and perseverance in prayer. But you know what? That parable, if you just look at the story itself, what's it about? It's about somebody who just gets worn down by someone else who just won't quit. And that's who you need to be. That's who I need to be. I need to be that loved one to another loved one who just won't quit on me. I've known lots of stories. I'm going to guess that you know stories as well. That ended in a baptistry by someone saying, you know what? They just never gave up on me. They didn't. I kept seeing her sterling example of Christianity day after day after day, and it just wore me down. 
He kept coming and asking questions and engaging in religious conversation week after week after week. And I just reached a point where I just couldn't fight it anymore. I just saw that it was real and it was genuine and there was something to it. And I wanted that Christianity thing. That kind of thing, particularly with a family member, that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's going to require lots of patience, lots of stick to it requires lots of prayer. It is going to require the kind of determination that's able to look at the devil and say no whenever the devil tempts us to throw in the towel. Now I want to say again about these principles. I believe that these principles will work. They're scriptural. They're practical. They're helpful. But I want to say as well, they're not magical. They're not automatic in any way. You know that I cannot guarantee you that if you do all six of these things today, that this evening, your loved one's going to become a Christian. I can't guarantee you that. It doesn't work like that. But I want you to remember this. As much as you love that family member, parent, sibling, child, whoever it is, as much as you love them, God loves them even more. As much as you want to see that loved one in heaven, God wants to see them there even more than you do. It's hard for us to even fathom, but He does. God is doing all that He can. He sent His Son. He gave us His Word, just to kind of summarize it into two different things there. And now He wants to use, He wants to use you. He wants you to be used as part of that great rescue effort to save that soul from damnation. You know, one of these days, one of these days I want to bump into someone in heaven and have that person stick their hand out and introduce themselves and say, Hi, I'm Timothy's dad. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that just be awesome? To know that Eunice, Lois, and Timothy, that all the working praying and influencing and working and praying and influencing that they did, that it resulted in him becoming a child of God. That would just be awesome. You know what? In the very same way, whoever it is that you have been thinking of during this lesson, whoever it is that you're thinking of right now, whoever it is that you are longing to see them come to the Lord, I hope and I pray that they do come to the knowledge of the truth. So that they can be saved. That is what God wants. That is what God has said that He wants. and He has given us all of the tools that we need to play a part in that process in bringing them to Him. Now perhaps there's someone here this morning who is not a Christian and you have come to the realization right now that you know what? This lesson really hasn't been for me. Josh hasn't really been talking to me this morning. And that is true. This sermon really hasn't been to you. This sermon surely has been about you. And I hope you have recognized at least that. And I hope what you have recognized is that we love you. We care so earnestly about you. You may have blood and flesh and blood family members that their love for you is really great. But I want you to know there's other people in this room. They love you as well. They want to see you obey the Lord. They want to see you become a Christian. They want to see you live faithfully for the Lord as a Christian. And they want to help you to do that. I want to help you to do that. Can we help you to do that right now? I want to say to you right now, if you're contemplating becoming a Christian, 
We don't want you to become a Christian to make us happy. Don't become a Christian to make your mom and dad happy. Don't become a Christian to make a special someone happy. That's, that's not a good reason to become a Christian. We'll be happy. That's not the reason to do it. You need to do it because you want to please God. Because you want to go to heaven. You want to be forgiven of your sins and you want to have the hope of eternal life when this present life is over. With that in mind then, can we assist you in becoming a Christian today? Confessing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and being baptized in water for the remission of your sins? All things are ready for that to happen this very hour. You are a child of God. Brother or sister, sin has come back into your life. I want you to know this sermon's been about you as well. We want you to come back to the Lord. And we are praying and we are pleading and we are doing everything that we can to help bring that about. I just need you to make yourself known. I need to make it known that I, I've got some things that are messed up in my life. And I want to repent of that. I want you to help me to make that repentance stick. Pray with me and encourage me. We stand ready to assist you as well. Wherever you stand, this is a local family. And we want to be your spiritual family. Won't you come be a part of it right now while we stand and while we sing?